you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. May Martinez, the ball is rolling on kids getting back to campus. Some California counties can start playing high school football this week, while some local districts are ramping up to have the littlest learners in classrooms by mid-March. Plus, director David Fincher's film Mank is about the person who wrote Citizen Kane. And the person who wrote Mank? Well, that was Fincher's father 30 years ago. It's all ahead on Take Two. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I mean, Martinez, thanks for joining us. Coming up. He wanted it to be a film that looked like and felt like it was made during that time period, and it was sort of lost in the archives. How director David Fincher and production designer Donald Graham Burt got the film Mank to look and feel so much like 1930s Los Angeles. That's just ahead. But first today, it's going to be schools. Following a drop in COVID-19 cases, Los Angeles County last week said districts could apply to reopen elementary schools. And it was welcome news, and a number of districts are already carrying out those plans, the largest one being Long Beach, which plans to reopen March 29th with hybrid instruction. This is after the vaccine has been offered to all teachers. Other districts, however, are planning on returning even sooner and are working out hybrid schedules, safety protocols, teacher negotiations, and lots of other logistics required to get everyone back to class safely. One of those is the Palos Verdes Peninsula Unified School District. It already reopened classrooms for students in kindergarten through second grade with grades three through six set to return by March 15th. The district, which has around 11,000 students and 19 school sites, also has submitted a plan for middle schools and high schools when coronavirus cases do go down even more. Here to join us and take us through this is Palos Verdes Superintendent Alex Chernis. Uh, Superintendent, all right, take us through your reopening plan for kindergarten through sixth grade. Sure, eh? Uh, so, uh, as you mentioned, our, our K through six will all be back uh, by March, March 6th in a, in a hybrid program. Uh, we plan on bringing back our grades seven through 12. Uh, our target date is April 12th, but we're really pushing to try to make that happen sooner. And we're trying to advocate with the state and the county to allow middle and high schools back, um, as soon as possible. Sooner. Uh, how, um, how much, as soon as possible, really? Are you that uh, confident that everything is all ready to go and squared away? We believe we can open schools safely, and, and one of the issues that we're, we're finding is that uh, our neighboring counties, Orange County and Ventura County, have uh, COVID positivity rates the same as L.A. County, mm-hmm. and all their middle and high schools are permitted to open, and ours are not, uh, because they are grandfathered in. So it's not based on case rate or data. It's based on the fact that uh, at one point they were in the lower red tier, uh, and that was way back in September. So we believe that um, if, if the middle and high schools can be open in neighboring counties with the same rates as L.A. County, then L.A. County's middle and high schools should be open as well. On a grade six superintendent, uh, I know that grade is included in your intermediate schools instead of your elementary schools. So how will reopening work for sixth graders? Well, that's definitely tricky. You know, the 
based on the guidance, we need to keep our students in classes uh, all together. So, so kids can't go class to class like a traditional middle school. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do what we can to bring the kids back and have an in-school experience. But we, uh, again, are pushing to open middle and high schools and have the middle and high school uh, regulations in force uh, as soon as possible so that that won't be an issue and kids can go class to class. Now, your schools have adopted a hybrid schedule. How does that work for you, uh, for your students and staff? Uh, what's the hybrid schedule going to look like? So it's an AM PM model. So the students come in the morning or in the afternoon and they're on class for approximately half the day. Uh, students obviously are all wearing masks, they're spaced apart. Uh, And the hybrid model allows us to have less students on campus at one time, but still getting all of our hybrid students to school. And what are the options for, say, students or staff who would rather not return for in-person learning or even even in a hybrid schedule kind of uh, situation? Sure. So so just like every other district around um, around us, uh, we developed a a distance learning program for families and students that don't want to come back right now. And we have teachers also in the same boat. And so they're, they're, they're essentially teaching the students um, that would prefer not to come back. So we have options and solutions for students not wanting to return, but we haven't created enough options and solutions for students that do want to return. And that's what we're advocating for. Now, when it comes to safety protocols are going to be in place to prevent the spread of the virus, uh, what do you have in mind? What's, what's, uh, what's ready to go? Uh, so pretty much everything. There's a screening before students come on campus that that they must go through. Once they're on campus, obviously they're spaced apart. They're everybody's wearing PPE and masking. As far as the, the teachers go, they're wearing the PPE. Uh, all students are wearing masks. Um, we've done work on our ventilation systems. Um, we're looking into testing, um, and and you know. Obviously, at the same time, we're trying to get as many employees vaccinated as soon as possible because that that's also important. You mentioned work on the ventilation systems. What kind of work? What, what have you been able to do? Uh, so adding new filtration systems that improves the quality of the, the, the air. Um, and so that's something that we've been working on quite a bit. Uh, we've gotten a lot of money, stimulus money, federal money to um, to improve the facilities. And so we've spent that uh, quite a bit on air filtration. Any partitions uh, in the classrooms? Partitions as well. When students can't be spaced six feet apart, we have um, clear dividers for each desk um, dividing the students. We're talking to Palos Verdes Unified Superintendent Alex Chernis about his district's school reopening plan. Uh, Supervisor, um, Superintendent, excuse me, the the lack of vaccinations for teachers and staff are the biggest issue, keeping a lot of districts such as uh, LAUSD uh, mostly remote for the time being. Are the teachers and staff at your schools fully vaccinated? And if not, what's the plan to get them there? They are not, and it's it's a supply issue throughout the county, throughout the state. So uh, we have local partnerships with our with our health, Beach Cities Health District, and as soon as they get the supply, our employees will go there and be vaccinated. Um, you know, until then, uh, there still hasn't been a lot of data that that shows transmission at school. So our safety protocols, we believe in. We believe between masking and spacing that um, students are going to be safe at school. And so vaccinations aren't the trigger in our district uh, to send teachers and kids back to school. But it is something that obviously we're advocating for. So supply is the issue with your district in particular. I, you know, I ask because uh, UTLA, uh, which represents LAUSD teachers and staff, has been pretty adamant about not going back uh, without being vaccinated. So I'm curious what discussions uh, have you had with your union, uh, your teachers union, and how the district was able to persuade some of the staff to go back? Well, we again, we, we stand behind our safety protocols. Uh, hopefully teachers will be vaccinated, at least get their first shots in the next couple of months. Uh, but it's simply, um, you know, it's, it's ineffective for kids to have to wait till everybody's vaccinated. Um, you know, that'll take us into the fall. And our students are many in crisis, so we just can't wait. There is a sense of urgency. Our, our employees feel that, our teachers feel our, our staff members, our aides, our parents and our kids all feel it. So our goal is to get students back as soon as possible. And we believe that we can do that safely uh, before everyone's vaccinated. But did, but did you have to did you have to make it uh, mandatory for teachers to come back, even if they don't have a vaccination, even one? That's correct. Yeah. When the when the county um, issued their uh, policy saying that 
children in grades K through six can return, um, then our association supported that. Um, and so we have gotten great support from our, from our labor partners. Uh, and when the state and county permits us to return, um, our, our employees are returning. One more thing, um, Superintendent. Uh, the deck has been cleared across California for youth sports to resume, um, and it, it, there's still some some issues with LA County uh, getting their number down to an acceptable level for for uh, things like football to come back. Do you anticipate sports and other extracurriculars to return on, to campus as well uh, with your reopening? And what plans and protocols are in place to allow all that? Absolutely. Uh, based on the recent guidance from the state. Uh, the positivity rate in LA County needs to get below 14 cases per 100,000 for sports to begin. And we're already down to 20 and we'll be reporting again, uh, the state will report again this Tuesday. And so we are so close to getting all youth sports and all high school sports back um, going at our campuses. So that's something that's really exciting. And we hope that the governor exercises the same flexibility in returning students to the classroom. That was Palos Verdes Unified Superintendent Alex Chernis talking to us about returning to in-person learning. Superintendent, thank you very much. Thank you, A. All right, let's turn now to the second largest school district in the country. That's LA Unified, and it's what's in store for its more than 600,000 students. KPCC's Caroline Champlin has the latest. Uh, Caroline, uh, Superintendent uh, Austin Butner gave his weekly address this morning. Uh, what did he say uh, in terms of returning schools uh, most immediately? Right. He said that next week, the district is resuming services they offered last semester before cases started surging. And this will include child care and space for students who don't have Internet access at home. Also, small group tutoring, special ed services and athletic conditioning. But it's all dependent on teachers who volunteer. The district won't force them to work in person. And just for reference, last semester, about 4000 students participated in this partial reopening daily compared to almost 500,000 students in the the district. So it's really uh, probably going to be a very small fraction of the total um, student population. Okay. Now, uh, will we be getting a little bit more into youth sports in our next segment, uh, Caroline? But what is meant by sports conditioning and when will it return to all campuses? Right. So based on the union agreement about this, it's only outdoor sports, only for an hour at a time. And only, like I said, if teachers volunteer, everyone is supposed to be socially distanced uh, by at least eight feet apart. So kind of further than usual, wearing masks and sanitizing any equipment that they use. And at this point, it's just supposed to be high schools dependent on teacher availability. So we don't know which ones will participate yet. Uh, but Superintendent Buettner said principals will have more information later on this week. All right. Now, the big question everyone wants to know, though, is uh, when students can get back inside those classrooms. So what sort of timeline did uh, Buettner lay out for elementary schools and how would that happen? Right. So for background, earlier this month, Superintendent Buettner floated a plan to get the youngest kids back in classrooms. He gave three conditions for reopening, uh, a district-wide safety plan, lowered case rates, and vaccines for teachers. And so far, he says the safety plan is ready. And now case rates have fallen, although Buettner would like to see it go down even more. And then that last element is vaccines. And teachers are not yet eligible, but they will, uh, they will be starting March 1st. So with all that progress in mind today, Buettner said they're hoping to be ready to open elementary schools by April 9th. So April. April. Okay. Now we just heard from the superintendent at uh, Palos Verdes uh, Peninsula Unified School District that middle and high school students may go back uh, to the classroom as early as April too, uh, assuming cases are where they need to be. What about middle and high schools in LAUSD? Right. So that's unclear at this point. And even L.A. County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer didn't feel confident predicting when that would be, because it's all going to depend on the county falling into the next tier down. Currently, we're in the purple tier at 20 cases per 100,000 people, and we would need to get down to seven cases per 100,000 people. And that hasn't happened uh, at any point for L.A. County in the pandemic yet. Uh, Ferrer said it's all going to depend on getting enough vaccine supply. Now, it seems like uh, LAUSD has implemented all uh, required safety protocols to make sure a return to campus is as safe as possible, but short of vaccinating all teachers and staff, where does that stand and, and how big of a barrier is that right now? 
Well, according to the district, every school is ready to go at any minute. Uh, Buettner says they've exceeded the CDC's expectations with air filters and testing. And Barbara Ferrer of L.A. County Public Health said her department has already approved the district safety plan. Uh, the barrier here is just getting signed off from the district teachers union, United Teachers Los Angeles. That has taken longer than everyone expected, like you mentioned. Yeah. We were waiting on an agreement to happen by January 24th. Uh, that date has now obviously come and gone, and, and we're still waiting. So since you brought up UTLA, what's the latest on this from them? So they said they're, they're still bargaining. In a video update on Friday, the union president, Cecily Meyer-Cruz, said they have their own three conditions before agreeing to go back to campuses. They want all teachers vaccinated or would have had the opportunity to get shots. And they also want the county case rate to be out of the purple tier, which, like I said, could be a while. Uh, another time, she also said they want every zip code to be out of the pur- purple tier in LAUSD, uh, which could be even longer. You know, smaller districts all over the place, Caroline, seem to be making plans for its uh, public schools to return. So teachers, I, I would assume, have to be on board. I just spoke to the superintendent at uh, Palos Verdes, and, and he said they made it mandatory for, uh, for teachers to come back. Uh, what do you think, Caroline? You've been reporting on this. What's the difference between LAUSD and, and these smaller districts? I mean, is it just really a matter of size? I think that's a big part of it. I think something that UTLA and LAUSD would point to is the sheer geographic size of LA the city. Because of that, there's really variable case rates. You have Pacoima with some of the highest cases in the country. And then you have places like Playa del Rey with about the same case rate as Palos Verdes and other school districts that are already reopening. Uh, So they'll say it's hard to make a decision about doing this when we know that it'll impact different schools differently. Uh, But then the other issue, I think, uh, is labor unions. More than half of the schools that are, have already been approved to reopen are private schools. And in many cases, they don't have teachers unions to have to get approval from. And that undoubtedly makes things a lot easier. All right. That's KPCC's Caroline Champlin. Caroline, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. So we've been talking about how some some California schools will be able to play sports like high school football this week. Not in L.A., not quite yet. But when it does happen, what will it look like and what other sports can join football in that mix? All that's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Arole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lumert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on, so we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app, Ami Martinez. Last Friday, thousands of California high school athletes got news that they've been hoping and waiting for for months. 
With the state's coronavirus case numbers on the decline, football and certain outdoor sports have gotten the green light to play ball. Counties with an adjusted case rate of 14 or fewer per 100,000 residents can get back on the field. Now, while L.A.'s rate is still over 17, which disqualifies the county, there now is at least a roadmap for an eventual return. For more on this, we called up Eric Sonheimer, prep sports columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and he told us that he's been expecting this. I was not surprised because a group of coaches in the CIF have been really on a tense lobbying campaign since December 14th when they announced the last youth sports update. And and really, the pressure has been on and credit to those coaches. They organized. They got a lot of the coaches in the state to join them. Then it's let them play organization of parents that started putting pressure on legislators and local people. So they came up with this compromise. I hope it will work. I think it will work. Things are getting better, and it's really time to at least give some sports a chance to get going. We've already had cross-country going with no real problems at all, and hopefully the tennis, track and field, and golf will be starting shortly, and then obviously the physical outdoor sports, we have to see how that's going to play out. So in Los Angeles, L.A. County, the last number we got in terms of positive coronavirus cases per 100,000 residents would not allow the county to start playing sports. Is, is that your understanding that they still have to wait to get to that threshold because it was 17 last week and 14 was the uh, number that would allow sports to happen? Correct. Every Tuesday, the state will release its latest figures, and that's what it's going to go by. So not Friday, not Thursday, every Tuesday. And once it hits that 14, and if it goes up, sports still gets to play unless a county intervenes and puts in a more stricter requirement than the state or the governor orders another state-owned order. So that's a good thing. There will be a little bit of consistency. And if the state were ever to intervene, they would probably hear it from a lot of people. But obviously, this is a safety issue, and we want everybody to do it as safe as possible. Were you able to talk to uh, any coaches, parents, or athletes over the weekend locally here in Los Angeles about what they were hoping for? Because I know that there is some conditioning being allowed to happen uh, along LAUSD, but still, sports can't happen in LA. But are they hopeful that that is just around the corner? Yes, clearly there's a great deal of optimism. There's been a lot of schools in Southern California that have been conditioning for months. They will be ready to go in two weeks as the requirement is for football. You need 14 days of practices. There's others that haven't been doing as much like LAUSD has not had any conditioning since December. And I'm still not certain they'll be able to have a football season because their priority is to get the teachers back in classrooms. And until kids are back in classrooms, I don't really see them allowing sports to happen, but hopefully that policy could end up getting revised as the numbers keep dropping. What has Austin Butner, the superintendent of LAUSD, what's been his position consistently on the possibility of sports coming back? His position since November is if it's not safe enough to be in a classroom, it's not safe enough to play outside on a sports team. I think that based on the science, that has changed, that they've shown around the country that it is safe enough to play outside sports with appropriate protocols. And you'll see lots of schools allowing their kids to participate outside of LAUSD, even though they're still in distant learning. Are athletes and coaches on the high school level going to get tested, the ones that are allowed to uh, start playing again? Yes, there's a state requirement. Every week, coaches and athletes in the sports of football and water polo must be tested. The state is going to absorb the cost. There's plenty of testing vehicles out there. And so that needs to be set up by the athletic directors and the schools to have these things happen. As one coach said, you know, there's a lot of obstacles ahead, but they've given them a path forward. There's financing there and everybody just has to find a way to make it happen for the kids who have not played anything since early March in California. Talking to Eric Sonheimer, prep sports columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Eric, in the counties in California that will be heading back to the field coming this week, are they expected to be in classrooms? So in other words, if they're going to play sports, if they're going to be uh, at the campus practicing and getting ready to play sports, will they still be in the classrooms as well? There's still some districts that have to make that decision, whether they want to allow kids who are not in the classrooms to play sports. We have some districts that are doing a hybrid situation where they're in class a couple days a week. 
I know those schools and districts will certainly get the play. But yeah, there's still a question about that. For example, El Monte School District canceled football. They're not going to bring it back. So that's going to be an issue for them. LAUSD has not given any indication whether they're going to allow football or not. But once a district decides they're not going to play football, that frees a student to go to another school and not lose eligibility if they get a hardship waiver. So the kids have the option then at this point uh, in California. If all of a sudden you can't play sports in your particular area, they are allowed to go to a different school. Exactly. But it would take sections have up to 20 days to declare them eligible. But I would hope that they would do that quicker because you're only looking at a five or six game football season. So parents need to make sure that those people will do it quickly. Otherwise, they're kind of wasting their time. You mentioned the short schedule, the five or six games possibly that a high school could play. Why is that? Why is it uh, just so short? Is there a calendar, a timeline, or a deadline date that we need to know about? Yes, the CIF Medical Committee advised that April 30th is the last possible day to play football if you want to have it safely to have a fall season. So most of the sections have a final date of April 17th. The city section and the northern section have put April 30th as their dates. So basically in in southern section, that's where most of the seven counties are. The final day for football is April 17th. So you work backwards on how many games you might be able to play. How crunched will the schedules be, Eric, considering that football is typically a a fall-winter type of sport, but now uh, in certain areas you might get football, you might get baseball, you might get all kinds of uh, sports uh, playing out of season, but all scrunched together in one season. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, and fans right now are not allowed. Only parents and family members would be allowed to go see various sports for now, so it is going to be a little hectic. I got to imagine that this is a good test case uh, for the schools in the counties that uh, will be allowed to play starting this Friday. If this goes well, as, as we've been talking about, if this goes well and outbreaks don't occur, do you think that this could lead to a wider opening up of prep sports in September when, when everyone gets back to school, if indeed kids get back to school on campus in September? Yeah, I certainly hope so. It definitely is going to be a test case and see what we're doing. I just hope everybody takes it seriously. So many people think everything is fine now. Everything is done. Let's not wear masks anymore. That's wrong. They have to follow the protocols. Otherwise, it can be shut down immediately. I hope everybody takes it seriously. I'm hopeful for the future, but we need to get something going and then see where it goes. Like I said, cross-country has begun with no problems at all, so that's an encouraging sign. All right, that's Eric Sondheimer, prep sports columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Eric, thank you very much. Thank you. the California GOP got together this week and it was through Zoom, not some super spreader political convention or anything like that. Top topics, though, for the state's Republicans. What do you think? Recall Gavin Newsom. Yeah, of course, that was top of the list. But what about the other? Well, it has to do with a lot of confidence for 2022. Find out all about it when Take Two continues. Stay with us. The journalists in the LAist newsroom work for you. I'm LAist higher education correspondent Adolfo Guzman Lopez. What the students are speaking about it is, is extremely valid. My reporting is about how students use higher education toward a better life. For the first time since being in this campus, it made me feel unsafe. Struggling through challenges like ethnicity, class, poverty, and family pressures. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Sunlight into my eyes Our only plan is to improvise 
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm A. Martinez. California Republicans gathered virtually this weekend for the state's party's spring organizing convention. Now gone were the crowded hotel ballrooms, the kitschy hats, and the networking happy hours that usually mark a political convention. But the state GOP still had a lot of business to take care of. And KPCC's Libby Denkman is here to explain what went on. All right, Libby, so what was the purpose of this convention? So the state political party's organizing convention is typically a wonky affair, and this was no different. Much of the weekend was spent debating and adopting new party rules and holding elections for local and statewide leaders. There was a lot of wrangling over online and proxy voting. The mute button was a big scourge of the weekend. We're all used to that at this point. Uh, The big headline was that Chairwoman Jessica Milan Patterson was reelected to a second term as the head of the state Republican Party. She's a Latina and became the first woman to lead California's GOP when she was elected last year. Patterson is also known as a close ally of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of Bakersfield. In her acceptance speech, Patterson talked about unifying California Republicans to support the effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom, whom Patterson called the worst governor in California history. He has failed to lead. He has failed to govern. He has failed the people. Not only is he a failure, but he is the worst kind of hypocrite arrogantly telling us how to live our lives while blatantly refusing to do the same. That last dig was referencing the now infamous dinner at the French Laundry in Napa, a lobbyist's birthday that Newsom attended in November. All weekend, Republicans criticized Newsom for his response to the pandemic, including school closures and what they call a slow and confusing vaccine rollout. We're going to talk about the recall uh, a little bit more in a moment. But first, uh, were there any uh, surprises during the convention? So there was one source of potential drama that the party shut down pretty fast during the General Assembly on Sunday. Party delegate Eric Elness of Brentwood tried to bring up a motion to censure Central Valley Congressman David Valadeo over his vote to impeach President Trump after his supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Valadeo was one of 10 House Republicans to vote for the most bipartisan impeachment process in history. But Elness barely got the words to raise the censure out when Chairwoman Jessica Patterson interrupted him and said he was out of order and his Zoom line was promptly muted. And that was that. Yes. Uh, Before the convention, Patterson also withdrew a controversial rule change that would have allowed the state party's 100 person executive committee to choose a GOP candidate to endorse in the recall if it makes the ballot instead of putting the vote to the full delegation. So those were both signs that the state GOP is trying to avoid infighting as much as possible. But of course, that's going to be hard as Republicans can continue this process of regrouping after the Trump presidency. And California Republicans especially are struggling over whether the party will stay aligned with Trump and Trumpian candidates or try to turn the page from the most polarizing figure in modern politics. They're removing the sitting Democratic governor and possibly electing a conservative to replace him is really the stuff that Republican dreams are made of. GOP candidates are already circling, trying to gather support. And over the weekend, we got some updated information about that recall effort targeting Newsom and the likelihood of it qualifying for the ballot, Libby. What is the latest on that? The new numbers show that this is not a done deal, but organizers have made a lot of progress. Here's what we know. Sponsors of the recall effort submitted almost 1.1 million signatures to county election officials as of February 5th, according to the latest Secretary of State report that was released on Friday. Of those, more than 668,000 signatures have been verified. 130,000 were rejected, and several hundred thousand more still need to be checked. So the process of counting is pretty Pretty slow. To get a recall on the ballot, organizers must collect just under 1.5 million verified signatures by March 17th. But if the current signature acceptance rate holds, sponsors will actually need to hit a mark of nearly 1.8 million total submissions to safely clear the bar to trigger a recall. Now, the two main groups working to round up the necessary signatures say they are on track, and they claim they've already gathered roughly 1.7 million total raw signatures. The real question, A, is how many of those they submit to county officials to be certified and if they can keep the same high verification rate that they've achieved so far. We'll be keeping an eye on those signature totals as the March 17th deadline approaches. Libby, anything else happen at the GOP convention this weekend that we should know about? 
There were several notable guest speakers, GOP stars and likely future presidential candidates, Governor Kristi Noem of South Dakota and Florida Senator Rick Scott. Representative Elise Stefanik of New York also dropped by. Some of them sent recorded videos. Some did Zoom chats with delegates. Republican strategist Karl Rove was there. He got his famous whiteboard out and he talked about congressional seats that the GOP flipped in California last year and the party's hopes to reclaim a majority in the House in 2022. I don't think it's an accident that for the first time since California became a state in 1850, that the Republicans flipped four seats uh, in the U.S. House for Representatives in California, and you did it by showing the face of the future Republican Party, two Latino men and two Asian American women. I want to compliment you on great victories. He's referring to Korean American representatives Young Kim and Michelle Steele in Orange County and Mike Garcia in North L.A. County and Valadeo in the Central Valley. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Uh, A greater number of Republican women candidates and and people of color helped Republicans outperform expectations in the House races in 2020. Uh, Any any final thoughts on all this, uh, Libby? Well, Christy Nome tried to draw a distinction between her Republican leadership of South Dakota during the pandemic, where schools are open and there's no mask mandate, and Newsom's management of California. He had all the same information that I had throughout this pandemic. He just made completely different decisions. And he also impacted families and devastated businesses that will long be felt after this pandemic is over. But critics of Governor Nome were quick to point out that South Dakota's COVID-19 death rate per 100,000 residents is one of the highest in the nation. The state ranks eighth out of 50 compared to California, which is way down at 34th. But Newsom's approval rating with registered voters has dropped in recent months as people confront pandemic fatigue, and that translates to frustration with the state's safety measures. The California Republican Party certainly hopes that that means he will be vulnerable if the recall effort qualifies for the ballot. That's KPCC senior politics reporter Libby Dankman. Libby, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. Director David Fincher's film Mank is about the person who wrote Citizen Kane. What about the person who wrote Mank? Well, that was Fincher's father, Jack, 30 years ago. But David was making movies such as Fight Club and The Social Network, so he had to put it on the back burner. Find out why waiting three decades, though, makes Mank the perfect film for today's political climate. David Fincher's next. When Take Two continues in 60 seconds. Stay with us. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC in most places where you get your podcasts. I'm Emar Martinez. Citizen Kane is considered one of, if not the greatest film ever made. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards, but only one for Best Screenplay. There are two names on that Oscar, Orson Welles and what about, what do you think? Give, give you a guess. Herman Mankiewicz. The thing is, if Orson Welles had his way, Mank's writing credit might have ended up on the cutting room floor. The Netflix film Mank tells the story of what happened, actually what inspired the Citizen Kane screenplay, and how a wisecracking, jaded writer, played by Gary Oldman, used his masterpiece to take a shot at the media moguls who shaped the political narratives at the time. It's also a peek back in time to California and Los Angeles of the 1930s and 40s in painstakingly perfect detail. We're joined now by Mank's production designer, Donald Graham Burt, and director, David Fincher. Now, David, Mank is your father, Jack Fincher's screenplay. Why did he choose Herman Mankiewicz to write a film about? My father was retiring from writing magazine stories and asked me 
if there was a story I would be interested in reading a screenplay about. And I'd read Pauline Kael's sort of screed and was just fascinated with who Herman Mankiewicz was. And that's Raising Cain, right? Raising Cain, which which brought up that's the debate correct. of who wrote Citizen Kane. Yes. So Pauline Kael wrote this essay and I had read it in middle school. And when my father sort of approached me to say, I'm looking to try and do something way more difficult <laughs> than writing stories for a uh, Smithsonian. I said, well, why don't you write a screenplay for Herman Mankiewicz? And it was, it was not, it was never with the intention of like venting the WGA spleen um, <laughs> as with regards to, you know, credit arbitration. It was mostly, I just found him in what I had read to be a funny and interesting character. And I, and I sort of liked the idea of, uh, of a guy meandering through Hollywood, biting all the hands that reached out to feed him. Yeah, and he definitely did. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Donald, you and David have worked together before. The Social Network, Gone Girl, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which uh, won you an Oscar for Best Art Direction. What did David tell you that he had in mind for what he wanted Bank to look and feel like? Actually, he first brought it up one day. Um, we were across the street in the coffee shop. I don't know if you recall, David. And we were prepping another film, which was postponed. But he had brought up to me in a conversation when we were discussing that other project. He said, you know, and then after this, I have this, this film that I really want to do. I want to do it black and white. And it's a period film. And that's kind of all. That's the only seed he really planted. When that postponed, it was a month later or so. And then this man came to the forefront and I remember meeting with him and David and I actually started six weeks before the actual production time to go scouting yeah. and look at locations. Yeah. And I remember being in the hallway outside David's office. And I don't know if you know this moment, David, but we were out by where those long benches are sort of yeah. built-in benches. And David just said to me, I want this film to be like you're in the film vaults and you're going through all the films and you see Citizen Kane and you pull it out and then right next to it, you see this film Mank and you, you pull it out and you look at it and you go, oh, wow, this was made then too. I didn't even know about this film. It, and just in that brief moment, it was like he wanted it to be a film that looked like and felt like it was made during that time period and it was sort of lost in the archives. So Donald, then, okay, when, when you found that out or, and you had that in your head, where did that take your mind for potential shooting locations? It wasn't so much locations, I think, to start with. I think it, it began with, you know, obviously reading the script and getting an understanding of the locales that are scripted. But also it took my mind into getting into research, you know, mm -hmm. just almost immediately and starting to get a sense of what L.A. was during that time period. You know, David's very hands-on as a director. He looks at every location photo through a digital site system he uses and he sort of started marking things that he wanted to look at. And I would look at his markings. And then from there, we proceeded to go out. And during this period of sort of pre-production, -pre I mean, for me, it's like, it's a godsend to just be able to drive around with him, look at locations and hear what he has to say. Because, you know, the great thing about David, and I'm going to embarrass you, David, David has the movie in his head. And I tell people this all the time. And you go around and you scout locations and you do it in an atmosphere where you're free to feel creative. And he starts to talk about the tone, the lighting, what works, what doesn't, how he sees things. And then as we look at locations, we start to discern what needs to be built, what can be filmed on location. And in actuality, I think sometimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, David, when sure. we look at locations that don't work, we almost learn more than when we find locations that do work. You know, pre-production is is a godsend when you get it and if you use it. And and I always feel like the greatest thing about directing movies for a living is there's no such thing as downtime. You know, there's the time that you spend in a van going from Pasadena to to the Getty Villa, but that time is either you can you can talk about lunch or you can talk about the movie. And, and a lot of time is spent going, ah, well, that's interesting that you asked that question because it, it keys into something else. So, you know, just making those laps around the track, you know, as much yeah. as it feels like the Indy 500 and, 
you know, there's 499 laps before the one that anyone cares about, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that, that time before everyone's punching the clock and you're truly, you know, up against it is, is the most creative time in, in filmmaking. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of moments where you find something that was not in the travelogue. It wasn't on the brochure of the place that they're showing you. And you walk down a hallway and I turn to Don and Don's eyes light up and he's like, this could be good for, and you go, yeah. And, and that part of it is the gift. You know, for me watching Mank, the star location for the film was uh, where this scene was shot. Now, so here's Mank talking to actress uh, Marion Davies played by Amanda Seyfried uh, after they walked out of a dinner party where she said something she should not have. What did I do that was so terrible? I guess I shouldn't have said that thing about the cabinet in front of Tugwell, but since when does anybody care what I have to say? Those things just pop out of my mouth, and the moment they do, I feel like... Like, like you got caught, jambes en l'air. <gasps> no. Well, do you always just say whatever you think? Hmm. You're blushing. Am not. Are too. Am not. Are too, I can see it. Even in the dark. Well, what can I tell you, Mank? Mary and Doris went to convent school. Hedda! <laughs> Wella! Where's the gossip columnist around this castle when you need one? And by castle, it's Hearst Castle. Uh, David, I don't think they allow much or any filming there. So where was that scene shot? That was the Huntington yeah. Gardens. Yeah. And, and again, this is a perfect example. You know, Don and I sort of wandered off and went into these orange groves and saw what is a mausoleum <laughs> on the grounds <laughs> at the Huntington. And we thought, well, we like the colonnade and we like this, the marble of the stairs. And if we don't know that it's a mausoleum and we don't know that there's a body interred there, if they come around it, we could possibly do a map painting of the Neptune pool in the distance. And so this thing that wasn't really on the menu became the reason we, we went in it and endured Huntington Library because it is not easy to shoot at the Huntington Library. It is not for the faint of heart. But um, but that's a perfect example of oftentimes you're looking for a, a venue for two people to plop down and have a conversation. And this could have been on a on a park bench, you know, surrounded by bougainvillea, and we could have just saw this giant cumulus clouds at night. But we found this thing that this little area and obviously it's it's something that they're proud of at the Huntington but you know it's a little morbid if you if you know what it is and we were just like well but if you only see a piece of it and if he comes around and I can do a mad painting and I can take this out and I can hear the sound of the ocean in the distance this might be a great like little promenade that overlooks the Neptune pool and so that's what we ended up doing so this is just by way of saying that there are so many conversations that one has with the extremely talented that that allow for a deeper understanding of the tributaries and back alleys that one can take in order to create a much bigger impression. We're talking to production designer Donald Burt and director David Fincher about their new film called Mank. So Donald, when when you realized that this was going to be the place where Hearst Castle was going to be portrayed in the film, but it's the Huntington. What did you have to do to recreate the the outdoor and indoor opulence of Hearst Castle? Huntington was just used for the exteriors. And, you know, we looked at a lot of research and I was fortunate to find research actually from the period and some very good research that was photographed at night on the exterior grounds of what was called then San Simeon. And we sort of, we kept it simple. And I think that was one of the keys to it. You know, we kind of kept looking at the research and we saw that these sculpted lampposts with these glowing globes on top of them kept reoccurring in the images and that there was, you know, an abundance of sort of sculpted balustrade and stone benches and statuary. And we didn't really indulge beyond those elements, you know, because there's so much more at San Simeon. And we filmed actually in Huntington Gardens, we filmed in like, what, three or four different areas, right, David? Yeah, and four we, or five. The zoo stuff was... Zoo you know, stuff too. Yeah, there are monkeys, giraffes, elephants. I mean, yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, but we just kind of kept using some of those, you know, sculptural elements like the lampposts and so forth in each location just to sort of tie it all together and... 
you know, I always think simplicity is the best thing for something like that. Now, I'm going to end with a question that I'm pretty sure would make Christopher Nolan throw up, but I'll give it a whirl with you, David Fincher. I've seen your film three times. The first was on my phone, the second time on a <laughs> tablet, the third time on my laptop. Um, are you okay with making a film as visually rich as Mank, knowing that maybe it's going to be the primary way that uh, they'll be consumed for who knows how long? Yes. And that's not to say that, you know, look, it's a difficult thing to say to, you know, really, really talented craftsmen and artisans. Don't worry, this is only going to be seen on someone's phone. So I don't. <laughs> and I never have. And you, you can't change time and you can't change the way things are headed. And people want to avail themselves of this. That is not to say that you shoot fewer takes because it doesn't matter because it's only going to be seen on an iPad. If if you care about it, you're protecting for it to be seen on a 45 foot screen. But I don't really equivocate between a 65 inch, you know, plasma uh, or a 45 foot screen or, or a six inch display on your phone. I, I sort of feel like our responsibility is to, is to think about the biggest possible venue so I feel like, yeah, you know, opening weekend, we would all love, you know, for $100 million worth of consumers to line up around the block and, and, and go see our wares. But if you're only thinking that way about the stories that you're telling, that in, in and of itself seems limiting. My attitude about, you know, downstream exploitation of a story and how it's seen, you know, is not that different from the publishing world, which is I don't look at the paperback as an inferior version of the story. I look at it as an expansion of the people that might have access to it. Now, to be clear, guys, before the pandemic, I would go to two or three movies a week. I love being in a movie theater. So, Donald, I mean, I'm going to regret, I think, if, if I never go back into a theater because I'm just not comfortable not seeing what you were able to produce with Mank. But considering that this is a reality, uh, are, are you OK with it? I am. I mean, I think, you know, I think as David was saying, you know, the world is changing and the platforms on which people view things is changing. And, you know, to just have it in a theater, you're, you're taking away a whole audience that, you know, maybe they don't see it in the big screen and see all the details and all the visual details. But, you know, the purpose of the film is the story and, you know, what's being told through it. And, and I always kind of keep that in mind as I work. I mean, you know, there's so many things that have changed it. And, you know, the COVID being another element and, you know, to be able to have it so that you can see it on your monitor at home, I think is, is a blessing, is a gift. That's production designer Donald Burt and director David Fincher. Their Netflix film is called Mank. Donald and David, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Rest in peace, Daft Punk. I mean, if they can't stay together, what kind of chances do we have as just normal people? All right, uh, if you missed any part of Take Two, that uh, interview with uh, David Bank and Donald Burt, uh, really, really great, great interview. You should uh, go ahead and try to listen again if you want to. It's uh, wherever you get your podcast. Just find Take Two, and there we will be waiting to be heard by you. We're also on Twitter, at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A. Martinez LA. That's good for Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Uh, All Things Considered with Nick Roman coming up next. <laughs>